This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Are you tired of the same old fantasy football leagues that you hear about online that get canceled after a year or so? If so, Dynasty Owner has your back. Dynasty Owner unites the fun and excitement of fantasy football with the skill and strategy of the front office by incorporating a salary cap and real NFL player salaries for diehard fantasy football fanatics that want the real GM experience. You can finally take all the knowledge you've learned about on the pod and put it to use in actual fantasy football. It adds a whole new level of strategy to fantasy football. They think it's such a big difference maker that they hold three patents on it. So what are you waiting? for go to fantasy or go to dynastyowner.com new leagues for the 2021 season are forming now that's dynastyowner.com you know so if you're worried about you won't be able to find anyone to play with in your league don't worry dynasty owner can help you fill your league with fantasy football enthusiasts like yourself so you won't have to worry about finding enough players you can choose to start your own league join a league that needs to be filled or you can even purchase a team from a previous owner if you'd like to take that team to the championship if you're finally serious about joining the big leagues go to dynastyowner.com and start your dynasty today that's dynastyowner.com i'm telling you guys you are going to absolutely love it What is happening, gang? We are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pauling, and we are jacked about this week's episode to dive into our look at the Hall of Fame. So this is that kind of fun window in the NFL calendar where the season is just on the other side of that hill, and the Hall of Fame is upon us. And we get to look at some of the historic performances players have put up throughout the history of the league. And in this episode, we get Bill's insight into how the Hall of Fame was created, what its relationship with the NFL is, how players get in, what the selection process is, and what is the criteria that guys look at when they're evaluating players for the NFL. So this is truly a unique opportunity to kind of get into the mind of not just an NFL Hall of Fame GM, not just a Hall of Famer, but someone who's actually on the selection committee to understand how all of this works. This is truly a fun show for anybody that's interested in this kind of stuff. But before we dive in, I want to take a minute and talk about one of our favorite sponsors on the show, Bet Online. July is underway and a great month for sports. I know that the NBA Finals is behind us, but MLB is heading into the second half of the season, and there's betting action to get involved with. If you're a football better, there's tons of future and prop bets that you can start doing on Bet Online today. They've got NFL MVP prop bets. I'm looking at a sheet right now. You can get Aaron Rodgers at plus 1,600, last year's NFL MVP at plus 1,600, 
I have a hunch he's going to be playing next year. I have a hunch he's going to be playing in Green Bay, but that remains to be seen. Might be a fun bet. Not giving advice, just maybe making a suggestion. So what are you waiting for? Head over to Bet Online now and visit the website or use your mobile device to join and receive your 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. That's right, 50% off welcome bonus on your first deposit. So before the next tip-off, face-off, or pitch, or you want to do some futures betting, head over to Bet Online and start playing today. All right, gang, this is our look at the process for the NFL Hall of Fame how it came together, and all the permutations therein on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Pullen. And we are live on the Inside Football Podcast with Bill Polian. And today it is the you can feel it in the air. I can feel it almost in my bones. Preseason will be upon us. Training camp starts in Richmond next week for the football team's campaign to the Super Bowl. Everything is happening. And so to that end, we're going to spend the next couple of weeks talking a little bit about the Hall of Fame. And so in this first episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the mechanics of the hall, how it was created how you get into the hall, who picks, a lot of those elements. So without further ado, Rick, why don't you jump us into it? Okay, great. Uh, it, it's uh, it, You get that precursor to your one of your favorite times of year, Scott, the preseason. The Hall of Fame season always comes right before it, so you're getting closer to the edge of your chair. You're there. Okay, all right. So, you know, the hall was founded in 63. Bill, historically, uh, why Canton? Well, because Canton is the spiritual and, uh, and and now with a lot of research done, the, the actual birthplace of the National Football League. Ralph Pay, uh, prior to uh, prior to 1920, um, there was a uh, th- there was an loose amalgamation of professional football teams who were really vagabonds. They played in small towns in the in the in the East and the Midwest. Um, oftentimes, uh, pl- collegiate players uh, masqueraded and played on Sunday as pros. That's why the pros played on Sunday <laughs> originally. Right, right. And and those guys uh, played under assumed names and were paid for their efforts. And then uh, on one day, Monday, went back to class and, and played where uh, and the following Saturday played wherever they uh, they were going to school. Um, it was a loose amalgamation. Schedules were made uh, much as Sandlot teams do today uh, on an ad hoc basis. And uh, and uh, there was never a, a declared national champion. Um, and there was no real league structure. And teams came and went. Uh, you know, there, the, the, the Portsmouth Spartans, the uh, Pottsville Maroons, uh, they, they, they sort of... Uh, Materialized, uh, had a run, and then and then ran out of money or couldn't function very well. So it was, uh, it, and it was generally looked down upon. Pro football players were looked down upon as as vagabonds and ne'er do wells. People who didn't want to work for a living, they just continued <laughs> to uh, just play sports that they should should have ended when they left college. Changed um, a little bit now, just a ch- smidge. slightly, yes, yeah. a little. Um, and one of the people um, that joined with Ralph Hay, Ralph Hay was a uh, was a car dealer in Canton, Ohio, 
And uh, he was right. acting as a, as a sort of a pseudo commissioner trying to bring together mm-hmm. some of the franchises. And he had a uh, Hupmobile dealership in Canton, Ohio, in downtown Canton. Uh, you, it, it's, it's actually commemorated with a plaque on the wall of the building and sort of in the center city. Uh, and and it, it, in his showroom, he convened a meeting of many of the uh, entrepreneurs and coaches and general managers who, in most cases, they were one and the same, who, uh, who ran these franchises throughout the Midwest and the East. And, uh, and so uh, one of the attendees at that meeting was George Hallis, who was then the general manager, head coach, organizer, and uh, chief cook and bottle washer for yeah. <laughs> the the uh, Decatur Staley's in uh, uh, you know an, another vagabond football team located in Decatur, Illinois, and representing the Staley Starch Company. It was a company team. In, in those days, by the way, many uh, uh, teams, uh, many companies sponsored football and baseball teams as part of a, you know, not a health and wellness, but an employee uh, uh, benefit uh, uh, position. Uh, So they got together and they essentially formed the National Football League. And instead of Ralph Hay being the first commissioner, they they appointed a man named Joe Carr. Um, But Hallis was the driving force behind it. And then soon thereafter, the Staley Starch Company said to Hallis, here, you take the team. Uh, we'll give it to you, lock, stock, and barrel. He did, moved it to Chicago, and it became the Chicago Bears. Yeah. Uh, in 1925, um, the National Football League convinced a, uh, a guy who was essentially a bookmaker. It was legal at the time. But there was no paramutual betting, so there were people at the racetracks in, in New York and, and around the country who set odds and took uh, took bets? That's man, that man's name was Tim Mara, and um, <laughs> for twenty five thousand dollars he bought a franchise in New York, which became the New York Football Giants. They're still known as that today, uh, legally. Yeah. Uh, and and so uh, the, the, the Pottsville, Pennsylvania Maroons eventually became the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, in, in 1933, I believe, uh, a, a professional gambler and, and saloon owner named Art Rooney Sr. Uh, won uh, a lot of money on a race at Saratoga in New York and uh, took some of those winnings and, and, and founded a football team called the, Foot, the Pittsburgh Steelers. So the genesis of it all right. was in Ralph Hayes' uh, Hupmobile showroom in Canton, Ohio. So that's why the hall is in Canton. Right. Um, and then I think a couple of things that they'll write, they were originally called uh, the American Football, uh, Professional Football Association, right? And then the NFL came along a little later. And also Canton has a, its own claim to fame that I think they were the first two-time champs in the NFL. Yes, the Canton Bulldogs. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, there was a more prosaic uh, reason that it happened, uh, which was that the Canton community got together uh, the year before and raised four hundred thousand dollars, which in today's dollars 
is like $3.5 million and built the first building there. So it wasn't like there were a lot of people stepping up to do this. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and at that time, there was a tradition uh, of, of small towns which had sometimes even a, an ephemeral a connection to the founding of the sport, i.e. Cooperstown, New York, Springfield, right. Massachusetts, right. being the home of, uh, of, uh, of, of the original home of the, of the sport right. and therefore the Hall of Fame. Uh, one other jumping ahead, uh, you know, we always heard from the days on of Pete Rozelle being the most powerful man in sports. Well, in terms of sports executives, uh, David Baker certainly has to be the biggest. <laughs> <laughs> well, a, for those a, that have not seen David, he's about six, eight. And uh, since he's lost a, 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 a tremendous amount of weight, he's under 300 pounds. But he is a say, big man. That's for certain. Yeah. I, I think there, than yeah, one. exactly. Yeah. And I think there were times when he must have tipped those scales over 400. But uh, and I first encountered him, Bill, when he was uh, the commissioner of the Arena Football League. Uh, and he saved my client from being suspended for uh, inadvertently uh, digesting some spaghetti, which was laced with what he thought was oregano. Oh, but it turned out to be marijuana. But Dave came through for me and we got to play on. So he's a very good guy, a, a wonderfully enthusiastic uh, salesman of the league and, and, and of, the, of the hall. He really and really, you know, where it the uh, halls came built from that first little building to where it is now is amazing. Oh, yeah. And he's he's the driving force behind all of that. He's a uh, very entrepreneurial. Uh, he, he's very optimistic. He's uh, he's done a marvelous job of expanding the, the footprint of the Hall of Fame. Uh, the centerpiece of which is uh, Tom Benson Stadium, which is uh, used to be Canton Municipal Stadium, uh, the home of uh, Canton McKinley High School, which is a legendary high school football power in the state of Ohio. Uh, the Canton Massillon High School rivalry um, dates back a long, long way, and and one of the people who made it made it famous was the uh, uh, was the the winningest coach of all time at, at uh, Massillon High School, none other than Paul Brown. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. there, there are deep roots uh, for football in the state of Ohio, and, and Canton's at the heart of it. But the new stadium is an amazing place. Yes. Uh, and, and, well, we're just about to move on to some real more player kind of specific questions. But I had to say this, uh, Bill, when, when you were inducted um, – you know, it, we had so much fun. It was, but the volunteers there are the nicest, most forthcoming volunteers of any event I've ever been in in my life. They're, they are just terrific. Those the, the people. Uh, oh, they are, and they and they really they really accept and embrace the mission of the hall, and and they embrace Hall of Famers. Uh, the saying that they have is uh, when you come back every year as a Hall of Fame member for the or however many times you come back uh, for ceremonies and what have you, they always say, welcome home. This is your second home. Mm -hmm. And and they treat you that way. Yeah. And, uh, for example, uh, the, the, the gentleman that that drove me and my wife and, and my family uh, during the weekend when I was enshrined, I see him every year. We get together, we exchange Christmas cards, we talk about the families. It's a, it's a, it's a marvelous relationship. Yeah, it really is. Um, all right. Well, as of 2021, there 
364 gold jackets. Bill, who who is actually eligible to be uh, honored as uh, inducted into the hall? Well, as a player, there's a number of different categories. Um, as a player, you must be retired for five years before you're eligible. And then you stay eligible, I believe, for 20 years. After that, after that, I'm sorry, 10 years, 10 years. After that, you go 10 years after the five? Yes, 10 years after the five. Yeah, Yeah, right. It starts in the sixth. Retired for five, you become eligible, and then your eligibility for direct membership runs for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Um, For coaches, it is literally at any time. So Joe Gibbs retired after coaching the Redskins and then was eligible upon his retirement to be elected. And then he decided to go back and coach the Redskins a second time. That was fine. No, no, no issue there whatsoever. We um, liked it. It was good. <laughs> we were yeah. <laughs> The, the only prohibition for coaches is that they, they cannot be uh, eligible when they're actively coaching. So Bill Belichick, who will be a first ballot, first minute nom- uh, selectee, uh, is not eligible because he's still coaching. Um, the, for uh, executives, they are eligible at any time. And then executives can be elected as part of the general population, if you will. Um, although that's, it's a little different now. There is, a, and, and I was the first, along with Ron Wolf, the first beneficiary of this. There was a new category created, um, which has to be voted upon by the board of directors of the hall, by the way, um, called the contributor uh, uh, category. And the reason that was done was because there's a number you can only enshrine eight people in a, in a given year. Uh, this year's an exception because we had the hundredth anniversary centennial class, and we had no inductions last year because of COVID. So let's we'll, we'll talk about that yeah. at, at a later stage. Yes, yes. But in a normal in normal circumstances, you can only enshrine eight in a given year, and you ask why. The answer is that's all a television show can accommodate. Hey, so <laughs> but now that they're going with a faster pace, do you think we'll get more? Uh, it's I doubt it. Okay, <laughs> I doubt it. Uh, so that would be five players, a senior nominee, and two contributors. Senior nominees are people who have aged out of the regular rotation but can have a second bite of the apple. And for the next four years, there will be um, uh, on in even years, there will be one senior nominee and two contributors. And in, uh, no, I'm sorry. Next four years, there will be one senior nominee and one contributor nominee each year. And, it, and they'll get revisited again after four years. Um, the categories won't go away and senior senior nominees will never go away. Right. So they get a second bite of the apple <clears throat> and, and, and it's needed by the way, it's needed. Mm-hmm. So uh, those owners, are the three. And then owners bill, right? Owners. Owners are eligible straight up. 
but now they're essentially included in the contributor okay. committee uh, in a contributor category. And, uh, uh, you know, that's a, a bit of a conundrum, but you know, that's where yeah. they are. So you, you don't, the contributor committee was not intended to be a place where you put owners in the hall. It was intended to honor people who were not players and not coaches who contributed greatly to the game throughout their careers. Now, some owners qualify for that, but certainly not all. Right. And, sure. and, and so, you know, it's, it, that's the conundrum, but in any event, uh, those are the categories, regular uh, admission after five years as, as players, uh, coaches eligible at any time, uh, as long as they're not coaching and, uh, and then contributors and seniors. And that makes up the eight man uh, roster, eight person roster that you will see in in normal years. Mm -hmm. uh, and then that process, there's a special voting process for each of those uh, categories. Ultimately, everybody has to receive 80 percent of the vote from the, the group of selectors. Uh, there are 42 selectors. Um, the seniors and the contributors are voted upon by separate subcommittees. And in the history of those um, nominations by subcommittees, only one has ever failed. Mm -hmm. It's generally a, a rubber stamp. So you mentioned uh, the special class, the centennial slate uh, that uh, was uh, in going and it's going to include. You were very involved in that. Tell us the genesis of that, how it worked. And I know you have some fascinating insights and stories about actually participating in the progress. We'd love to have you share. Well, the centennial, um, the centennial class was the brainchild of a number of people, um, including David Baker, Joe Horrigan, who was the executive vice president of the hall and who ran the 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 day-to-day -day operation of the hall and the entire selection process for as long as I can remember, uh, uh, was the driving force behind this. And he got a number of people around the league interested in, in pushing this. Let me backtrack a little bit and, and explain the relationship between the National Football League and the Hall of Fame. It is arm's length, to say the least. There are owners, and right now I think there are two who serve on the board of directors, but the board is overwhelmingly civilian, so to speak, not NFL-oriented. Um, and then um, the NFL every year obviously sends and pays the expenses of the teams who play in the Hall of Fame game. And they give a stipend every year to the Hall of Fame, but it is not enough, not even nearly enough to operate the hall. I, I think if you, uh, and there's no one alive who can remember this any longer to, to check on it, but I think the original stipend was designed to run the hall, but, but that, that, you know, yeah. faded quickly and, and, Actually, the David Baker and, and his staff make a presentation to the ownership every year at the March meeting, the annual meeting of the league, uh, to ask for funds. And, and they, they don't get it very often. The stipend is, the stipend is, is, is raised, you know, 
inflationarily uh, every couple of years, but but nothing special. Why so do you think that is? is it, uh, I don't know, honestly. I don't know, honestly. I really don't. I've never asked that question. It just is. Right. Because <laughs> anybody who's been to Canton as a fan, it's like the field of dreams moment. Oh, it is. It is. It's yeah. the cradle of football. They have unbelievable exhibits. It's an unbelievably fun way to spend a day. You would think the league would want to do everything in their capacity to financially support it. Yeah, well, they don't. <laughs> they, they expect it to be to be at least in, in, in large measure self-supporting. Right. And David, David has taken that approach. I mean, he's taken an entrepreneur, uh, entrepreneurial approach because that's the only way to expand and grow the whole. So um, that said, um, the, the, there is a group of selectors uh, who are chosen by the hall board and who are chosen within the guidelines selected uh, uh, with constitution and bylaws of the hall within the guide, those guidelines. And this goes back to the founding of the hall. Uh, they are to be media members, as is the Baseball Writers Association uh, with, with baseball. And, um, and they must be working media members. So in recent years, there was a push from the football community, i.e. Hall of Famers, um, players and coaches in the league to include some Hall of Famers on the selection committee um, for a couple of reasons. Number one, institutional knowledge. Um, as, as the media people get younger, uh, they, they, they haven't seen a lot of the people that, that, uh, that, are, that are being nominated. And, uh, and secondly, um, as as they grow farther and farther from the field because of the nature of media and the nature of of, of the bigness of the National Football League and, and most recently, of course, COVID, where everything was done virtually, um, there's a need to have the expertise of people who've actually been on the ground and played against these guys and coached against them and managed against them to, uh, to be part of that process. So there are now four... Um, there are now four uh, gold jackets on the uh, on the selection committee, uh, of which I am one. The other three are Dan Fouts, um, Tony Dungy, and uh, and uh, uh, James Lofton. So almost a I'm clearly, nomination. I'm clearly the 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 junior uh, junior 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 member of that group, but yeah, the. But it's fun. It's a fun process. It's very different than anything I was used to before. But um, that's how the that's how the the, the enshrinees are selected. Hey, Bill, anyone can be nominated. Excuse me. Go ahead. Sorry. Hey, Bill. How do the reporters get picked? Because like, even in looking uh, at the reporters, like I found it weird. Some of the reporters that were even there, just in terms of it's not necessarily all the name guys you would think of who cover individual teams. No, there is a requirement that each market be represented by a media member. So each of the 32 markets have a, quote, voter on the on the committee. Right. Um, okay. That 
Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Who picks those? Like, how how does who like who picks those? Like, say, Garrett through, Bell becomes the one for us. Uh, it it goes through originally Joe Horrigan, now Celine Chowdhury, whose title is director of the selection process. Okay. And he he consults with senior selectors. Um, he consults with David Baker. He consults with people at the league. And he consults with the Pro Football Writers Association, who has a loud voice in nominating selectors. Mm-hmm. And, and then the, the people are chosen from there. Now, um, there are people who are sort of grandfathered in, um, who, uh, who've been around a while and, 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 and maybe are no longer meet all the qualifications, but they stay. Uh, right. <laughs> and, and so, you know, there, there's a calling every once in a while, but it's once in a while. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and then and then uh, if if at any point in time uh, a city has two franchises, they get two. Actually. Yes, they, yes. that's correct. It's per right. franchise. One yes. voter per franchise plus 10 so-called at large 32 right. plus 10 so-called at large. The four gold jackets are part of the at large uh, contingent. and then. You know, that at-large group is designed to, to accommodate. I'm going to pick a name. He's not a voter as far as I know, but uh, Chris Berman, for example, from ESPN. There's no way to include that. They don't have a franchise, but right. Fox Sports, NBC Sports all have people who should be voters, uh, but, but, uh, but, you know, don't have a franchise. John Zarnecki who's a, was a well-known sports writer who's now with Fox is one of those people. So there are 10 at large spots in addition to the 32 selectors representing each market. Right. Okay. Yeah. Um, so talk about the difference in a sense between football and baseball now, and no, even on the baseball side of these things, these are actually not rules, but, but Bill, you and I, and Scott knows, uh, you and I have just been around a little longer to, to, to know this, uh, you know, in making decisions in, in baseball, there, there are certain benchmarks that everybody knows that kind of qualify you like 3000 hits and 500 homers or 300 wins uh, in, in football. Are there, when, when you, the selectors are looking to approve somebody, you know, are there, are there things like that uh, in football or is that, not kind of how you go about it there are general first of all these are not hard and fast rules they're traditions right right and and there are general general um standards which people refer to so for example uh let me just get my stats here for a moment Oh, good God. Did you hear the jackhammer? That's not coming from my yard. Is there any way to block this out or do we need to change the room? No, we can get it out in the edit. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yes. Um, for example, um, for certain positions like receivers, um, you know, receptions, uh, 
receiving yards would be a statistic that everyone relies upon. And the all-time ranking is really important uh, in any of these categories. For quarterbacks, obviously, it would be touchdown passes. It would be uh, yards. Uh, quarterbacks, it would be uh, QBR, um, passing, total passing yards for all skilled players, um, touchdowns scored for um, defensive backs. Interceptions is a big statistic um, for defensive linemen and linebackers. Sacks are a big statistic. So all of those are parts of the discussion. And so, for example, with um, receivers, uh, in receiving yards, uh, here, are the, here are the top 10. Jerry Rice, Larry Fitzgerald, who is not with a team now and may, may not play again this year, but his five-year clock doesn't start, by the way, until he officially retires. Right. Um, Terrell Owens and Randy Moss, who are third and fourth, respectively, in receiving yards. Terrell Owens was a very, very uh, a controversial selection, but ultimately made it. Isaac Bruce, Tony Gonzalez, Tim Brown, Steve Smith, who is uh, his, his, uh, uh, he will be eligible, I believe, next year. Yep. Marvin Harrison and Reggie Wayne, who was a finalist last year but did not make it. Those are the top 10 um, guys in receiving as of now. Andre Johnson is next. He's um, won't be eligible for a couple more years, I don't think. James Lofton, Chris Carter, um, Tory Holt, Andre Reed, Steve Largent, et cetera. So uh, Art Monk. So when you, 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 when you go down that list, virtually everybody in the top 10 is a is a significant it's either in or will be and and others you know are, are probably pretty close um to being inducted when they become eligible rushing yards for example Emmett Smith, Walter Payton, Frank Gore still playing, Barry Sanders, Adrian Peterson still playing, Curtis Martin, LaDaniel Thomason, Jerome Bettis, Eric Dickerson, Tony Dorsett, Jim Brown, Marshall Falk, Edger and James, Marcus Allen, Frank O'Harris, Thurman Thomas, and then it stops there, but that's a total of, uh, let me see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. That's almost, that's well over 20 guys. Uh, who are who are in uh, based on on their rushing yards, and hey, the magic number is twelve thousand rushing yards, right? For, okay. for a career. So, hey, Bill, looking at the like, just looking at the rush yards, for example, if you look at the top yeah. fifteen, probably ostensibly, obviously, Adrian Peterson still playing. He'll he'll likely be a Hall of Famer. How hard do you think the conversation will be, or will it be hard for a player like Frank Gore, who has 16,000 uh, total yards rushing in his career, but maybe people don't think of him as a Hall of Fame running back? Well, now you get into um, what is a very subjective selection process. 
Yeah. But like every other group of people in the world, um, there are elder statesmen in the group who, generally speaking, um, sort of shepherd the discussion and shepherd the discussion offline as well. So one of the things that the elder statesmen have talked about for long periods of time is that longevity is important. Because in a sport where the average guy plays, the average person who makes a team and plays two years plays six. When you get a person who's played 16 years, that's pretty amazing. Yeah. And and when he's done it in a way that is productive, that's even more amazing. Right. So I would think that Gore may not be a first ballot nominee. No one knows what qualifies a first ballot nominee. There, there's a big argument about it, but not argument. There's a big discussion about it. But um, you know, he, I, I think for sure, as the third leading ground gainer of all time, he, 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 he would get my vote. Let me put it that way. Right. Adrian Peterson is a bit dicier because the back end of his career has been non-existent virtually. I mean, he's been on its team, but he's not been productive. So what you're going to do with him is look at his most productive years. And, the, uh, and let me talk a little more about the selection process because yeah. this is unique. Yep. Let's go back to that media member who's selected from each market. They act as the advocate in the meeting for the nominee. So if you are from a market, if your guy is from a market where the advocate is highly respected in the room, and more importantly, if he or she is a good advocate, a good lawyer, a person who can make a good argument, and refute counter arguments, you got a better chance than if your advocate is not right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> terrific. So it helps to have a good lawyer. There's yeah. no question about that. So, Bill, well, that, that's true in life generally, Bill, wouldn't generally. you say? <laughs> Sadly, I hate to agree, but it's true. So, Bill, can you take us into the room? So, so you get the list of players, then I'm assuming. How, how long are the sort of presenters allowed to advocate for the player? Do they get like a 10-minute presentation, 15-minute presentation, and then there's discussion afterwards? How does that work? Well, let's go back to the, to the, to the process so you understand yeah. uh, the step-by-step -step process. Right. Anybody who's eligible can be nominated. And, and, and you, Rick, or, or you, uh, Scott, could nominate somebody by as long as they're eligible by sending their name to the Hall of Fame. Okay. Uh, that name is curated to make sure that they are eligible. And then some standards are applied. So if you uh, nominated a guy who played a year, for example, you know, he wouldn't make the list. Right. But virtually anybody who's played for five years and, and had, a, you know, uh, some honor at some point, Pro Bowl or something like that in his career, or had been a long time to start, will, will make the nominee list. Mm -hmm. That is then circulated to the selectors. And, um, and beginning um, quite soon in August, 
after the enshrinement, we'll get the original um, list and we will narrow that list, I believe, to 25 um, semifinalists. And then that's by vote and majority vote. And then in, in the case of 25, it'll, that's a plurality, obviously. And then um, to 15. And then, and, and once you reach 15, those are the original, those are called finalists. And then in the, in the meeting, which is the day before the Super Bowl, those 15 individuals are discussed. And then you vote from 15 to 10, and then from 10 to five, which is which is, are the number of people who are selected from the player category, the respective senior and, uh, and uh, contributor category committees make their recommendations, their final recommendations. And then those people get an up or down 80% vote. So uh, that's how the process works. So okay. now, yeah. So say, take us in the room now, you know, and tell yeah, us about okay. the, to the tone of the discussion, the quality. If somebody's advocating, would there be a guy that says, you know, that guy's a jerk or he does, you know, he, you know, you know, he didn't really, he really didn't do what you think he did. Cause like yada, yada, yada. Before we meet the hall staff sends out a book that is hundreds of pages thick, which contains biographical de uh, detail and statistical detail on every um, nominee. And you are free as a selector to do anything you wish with that. Um, I have, I go through extensive statistical comparisons between people. So, um, length of career, average gain per pass attempt. You know, I take out a, a yellow legal pad and write down all the, all the uh, nominees by position and, uh, and try and do a pretty in-depth statistical comparison of them all before I ever apply the eye test or, or, or what I, you know, I know of the, of the nominee. Um, from from his pure playing ability to try to get some hard as much hard data as I can, I think most people, most selectors, do that. They're certainly during, during the discussions. They're certainly um, uh, there's certainly uh, evidence of that. Um, it, it, last year was my first year as a selector. I'd been a consultant to both the senior committee and the contributor committee. Um, and by the way, I forgot to mention, there's now a separate coaches category, separate coaches category. This year would be the first year to be voted upon. I'm sorry, I didn't mention that in the first instance. That's how you get to eight. So now it's players, senior nominee, so chosen by subcommittee. By the way, the committees are all selectors. Um, coaches nominee, chosen by a subcommittee 
and uh, nominated by a subcommittee and contributor nominated by a subcommittee. So uh, that's how you get to eight. And three of those are nominated by subcommittees of the selectors. I'm, I'm, I'm on the senior committee this year, um, as well as being a, you know, an overall selector. Um, so with that said, back inside the room, um, I think there are probably three categories of, of people that you discuss. The first would be the obvious um, first ballot person. Right. And, uh, and, and, and this year it was Peyton Manning and Mike Chappell, who from the Indianapolis, formerly the Indianapolis Star, he's with a television station now, um, stood up and said, Peyton Manning, any questions? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and many people believe that that is the only way someone should make it on the first ballot. There are, now, not this is not cut and dried. Many people I've talked to, fellow selectors, believe that's the criteria for a first ballot guy. Um, it's not written in stone. There's no rule that says that's the case. But obviously, when Tom Brady's name is mentioned, any questions? Yeah. You know? Right. Yeah. Bill Belichick. Any questions? Right. You know, uh, <laughs> there won't there won't be. Right. So, um, the that's one criteria or, or one category of people of person. Megatron made it on the first ballot this year, but not without discussion. And the fact and and the discussion was not around whether he belonged in the Hall of Fame or was going to make it. It was what you know should he be on the first ballot it was short lived by the way um bill to that end how hard is it when you're comparing him to say like a reggie wayne who has more career yards well length of career and and, and yards per catch uh are you know are things that you can use to to sort of um parse that out to, to, to get to the point where it's and I do that, by the way, uh, to get to the point where it's it's uh, where you have an accurate comparison. Um, and then the third category is um, the guy around which there's going to be some discussion. And those can, you know, in my in my experience, they're all very civil. Uh, but there are people who feel strongly uh, about candidates and there are people who feel just as strongly that they don't belong. Those, uh, I, 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 I never call them marginal because everybody that makes it to the final 15 um, is probably going to make it to the Hall of Fame at some point in time and probably should. Um, but um, there are guys that uh, around which there, there's discussion and, and there's a lot of discussion. And, and as you might imagine, some people agree and some people don't. And it's tough to get 
That's a really high standard. The baseball uh, Hall of Fame is seventy-five percent. By right. the way, yeah. Um, this this is this is eighty percent is a hard standard to meet. Right. So you have to have both a great record, and as I said before, it helps to have great advocates for you in the room. And uh, and it's not just your advocate that speaks. He gets five minutes, but then the open discussion can go as long as as, as you know, they want it to go in mm-hmm. essence. Um, and it, when, when somebody, if it, if it's not a, uh, and forgive the mixed sport metaphor, but if it's not a slam dunk candidate like Peyton Manning, when, when folks um, are standing up uh, arguing against them, are they just using statistical things or are they saying, Oh, he was just a product of the system or, you know, how, how are they, 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 they mounting these challenges, Bill? Well, they, they, you know, keep in mind, I've only been in there once. Right. So uh, I can only give you a, a snapshot. Um, it can range from, you know, he didn't have very good games against another Hall of Famer um, to his career is too short. Mm-hmm. Um, Prior to Terrell Owens' selection, I'm sorry, uh, the running back from Denver, uh, Terrell Davis, prior to his selection, um, there appeared to be, if you just analyze it, a bias toward people uh, who had long careers and a bias against people who had short careers. Gail Sayers was really the only exception. Um, But then once Davis got in, then, you know, like, like things in Congress and things in the law, once, once the, that, that sort of rubric was, mm-hmm. uh, was changed, right. now the argument for Tony Baselli is, is stronger. He only had really six years. His career was shortened by injury, sadly. Um, but once, once, Terrell Davis got in, then mm-hmm. people said, well, why not Tony Baselli? Right. It's a matter so of precedent. You can set a, set a precedent in that yeah. way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, yeah, that's exactly right. A pre- the precedent that, that short careers mm-hmm. were disqualifying seems to have been, have been uh, ameliorated a bit. Mm-hmm. So we'll see how that goes going forward. A lot depends upon, truthfully, a lot depends on who's in the class. John Clayton, a good friend of mine who's been a selector for a long time, explained it to me. He helped orient me toward the selection process so that I would, you know, I didn't go in the room blind. (laughs) Um, uh, And he said, you know, a lot of it depends on who's in the class, who's eligible in a given year. You might have a given year with, with 15 finalists, 12 of whom would make it in any other year, you know? So, and you might have a year where of 15, there were only three standouts, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it just depends on who retires when and who's right. in the group and so on and so forth. So we, yeah. Cause um, it's interesting. Cause this year was massive and next year, I think it's going to be a little more interesting because you, you only have like maybe Steve Smith, who's the first one year guy who would be in that group. Yeah, that's correct. And, yeah. It depends no, on, Whose eligibility cycle comes up? 
Right. So, Bill, since a uh, couple of questions on sort of generally the same theme. Um, number one, we, we all know that there are certain players who were absolutely uh, fantastic players, but really didn't like the media, didn't like dealing with the media. So since so many of the selectors are media, does that ever come into account where a guy who just gave them or their colleagues a hard time is less likely, not again, not a slam dunk, but if he's questionable, is are they less likely, in your opinion, to go ahead and let that guy join the club? I haven't seen I haven't seen any evidence of that. And in fact, Terrell Owens is probably is probably the, the, the proof that that doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Mm-hmm. And what about off-field stuff? For example, Paul Horning uh, got in despite the suspension. Would Adrian Peterson, who you mentioned, uh, would the corporal punishment of his kid be something you think would in any way, or is it what you did on the field is what you did on the field? Uh, The bylaws state that you are to be judged by what you did on the field. Paul Horner got in. Alex Karras, who was uh, found guilty of the very same offense and was not recalcitrant, was not uh, repentant at the time, um, only got in as a member of the Centennial class. And I was a I was a selector as part of the Centennial class and um, and and actually one of the people, along with Bill Belichick and Ron Wolf, who did a lot of film study of the so-called old timers and to both, I think it's fair to say both Bill, both Bills uh, thought that Alex Karras was, was very, very deserving as a player. He was, uh, uh, he was a, 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 an athletic um, pass rusher before that those people existed. (laughs) He was the first of his kind. And, um, and he was, he was amazing dominant doing that on the film and uh, and and the, the issue of uh, of his suspension um, came up in passing but got got really no consideration just say mm-hmm. hey this guy's a great player that's what we're here to do you know vote and 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 he was chosen mm-hmm. okay. Okay. Hey, Bill, how tr- how much more difficult is the conversation with positions that the statistics aren't as readily obvious or uh, collected as much? Say, for example, offensive linemen or special teams right. players. How hard are those conversations? And how subjective are they? Well, there are no special teams players in, which is which is a terrible tragedy, and it breaks my heart because Steve Tasker is is certainly the best in in my over fifty years of following pro football uh, in that category, and he belongs in, but apparently the voters don't believe that that's a category that, that is, um, you know, that should be honored. Um, his name did not come up last year, but, but uh, uh, or did not come up, you know, for any serious consideration last year. Um, and I think he probably, the senior committee will give him if he's, if he's to get his just desserts, which he, he he deserves, it'll be through the senior committee. 
Um, kickers traditionally are not, and punters are, are not um, looked upon favorably. Uh, Ray Guy was a, was a bit of a, that, that was a bit of a, a tussle to get him in. Um, I was one of the people that strongly supported him. Mm-hmm. Um, as we know, Morton Anderson is in, uh, Jan Stenerud is in, and I'm certain that Adam Vinatieri will be because he's the leading kicker of all time. I can think of a couple of more that I would include, but I think it's fair to say the voters don't look overly kindly on those positions. As regards offensive, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, just one other sort of special team. Just like, do you think the the, the trend will start to look different? Like, let's say Benetieri gets in, you'll have three kickers in. Could that be like a precursor for players like Steve Tasker or some of these guys like Brian Mitchell or Darren Sproles who have racked up tons and tons of all-purpose yards or somebody like Devin Hester who, you know, you know this very well yeah. from the Super Bowl <laughs> who could, could potentially change a game at a moment's notice who leads the league in all-time sort of non-offensive touchdowns. If those guys will get a deeper look, you think? I do. I do. Yeah. I absolutely do. The game has changed so dramatically. Um, since the uh, even even since the the nineties, that uh, I'm certain they're gonna they're gonna be looked upon differently. Yeah. Um, certainly, first of all, the selectors, um, through God's will, are gonna get younger. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know? and, and and they're gonna be more amenable. Right to understanding the contributions that guys like that meant. Now, Tasker and Brian Mitchell have a, 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 a little harder time because many of the selectors don't remember them or remember or remember them fleetingly. Um, but you know, Devin Hester certainly is going to get, I'm sure, going to get serious consideration. He was an incredible weapon. Yeah. Um, Gail, one of the reasons Gail Sayers, even though the short career people. Who, who were part of the process told me that, um, you know, one of the reasons Gail Sayers got, got in was because, um, you know, he was such a dominant kickoff return when there were no people mm-hmm. who did that to any great degree in, in, yeah. in the game. There was only one, Gail Sayers. Right? Yeah. So yes. even though the short career, uh, the, the injury-shortened career um, mitigated against him, the fact that he was so dominant as a kickoff return was acknowledged. Yeah. Because we've never talked about it on the show, but I'm sure we'll get to it. Like, how high did your agita level raise when Hester returned that kickoff for a touchdown in the Super Bowl? Well, I, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a scoop. Vic Carucci and I have a book coming out, which will be out on November 16th, called Super Bowl Blueprint. And in the book, we study the the dominant not the but dominant teams in a number of decades starting with the the original raiders because of the imprint that al davis had on the league and all the great raider players and coaches um and then the 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 steel curtain steelers uh and then the dominant teams in the 80s and 90s i.e san francisco the Jimmy Johnson Dallas Cowboys um, and the the Green Bay, the Ron Wolf, Mike Holmgren, Green Bay Packers, 
uh, and the Joe Gibbs Redskins. And then we bring in, uh, really because of something Phil Simpson, this is an oral history, by the way, this is a, not Vic and I writing, it is Vic and I speaking to the players, coaches, and general managers, and in some cases, owners of these teams to get their recollections of what life was like in the NFL at the time and what it was to be on those teams. And there are some amazing, amazing anecdotes that I had never heard before and Vic had never heard before. And if we haven't heard them, probably yeah. very few people have. <laughs> so uh, it's, it's going to be amazing. Um, we had such fun doing it, but in it, Oh, let me backtrack. Um, the question was, um, should we consider the, the, the 2000 Colts? And we said, well, we can't consider the Colts unless we consider the Patriots because it's such a rivalry. But the key components for the Patriots, Coach Belichick and Brady, are still playing. So they're not going to do interviews right. and, and retrospectives. <laughs> so we couldn't include them. And we decided, well, let's not do the Colts then because it kind of looks self-serving. Obviously, I'm part of that. And Tony Dungy's part of that. Tony Dungy's a, a very big part of the Steelers story. Um, but then Phil Sims said to us, you know, Peyton Manning changed how quarterback was played across the game of football from Little League to the National Football League. And we said, holy mackerel. That's right. He did. Because the game is now played by the quarterback at the line of scrimmage. And so we said, let's do it. Let's include. Mm -hmm. And we have the, the 90s Bills in there because they were the dominant AFC team at the time. It succeeded the Steelers and, of course, four Super Bowls and the no-huddle offense. Part of it is that we found that each team that we studied had a charismatic coach. His personality didn't matter. He, he was he had a unique talent for leadership. Um, a really good general manager to put it together, but he was far less important than the coach. And and a coach with a system of football that was unique to the time. So that's the premise of the book. That's the mm -hmm. lead in. So you understand the anecdote. And in the book, I talk about and others talk about. Uh, the opening kickoff of uh, the Super Bowl between the Bills and the Bears and Devin Hester back there. And so the day before the game at practice, I said to Tony, are we going to kick to Hester? He said, nah, no way. No, no, we're not <laughs> right, right. So now it's raining cats and dogs. <laughs> it's been raining all day. And I'm literally up to my ankles in water in the, in the lean-to that I'm seated in with our staff, <laughs> with our front office staff on the, on the, the top deck of the Orange Bowl. And um, we line up to kick off. And one of the guys said, boy, I hope Vinny kicks this thing out of the end zone. If he doesn't, he can kick a ground ball and it'll be mired in the mud anyway. <laughs> so we kick off and, and Hester fields it. And it's fieldable. And, of course, he took it back. Oh. So I said, my God, what happened? <laughs> so after the game, I asked Tony, hours after the game, I asked Tony, I said, what happened? Why? He said, well, 
you know, the guys are going, kick it to him, kick it to him, we'll stop him. He said, I decided to do it. I said, well, thank God you didn't do it again. He said, I wasn't done. There was no way it was going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, let, let me, uh, I also have a feeling the first two words out of your mouth were slightly different than what you actually said, Bill, but that's that aside when it, when it happened. Uh, you know, get two things. Sayers, to me, you know, just Bill, the aesthetics of watching Sayers run were so amazing. I, I you know, were I a selector, I, I would have voted for him. Just for, to me, he was like the Barishnikov of of running backs. You know, uh, it, was, it was different than anyone else I ever saw. But relative to kickers, as you've said so many times on the show, you can't win a championship without kicker. I mean. It, 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 isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're saying, I guess it's time that they realize, yeah, they may not be out there pounding people, et cetera, et cetera, but their contribution to the team and to victory is essential. So, I mean, shouldn't, shouldn't more kickers be, be getting in there? Well, I think when you, when you look at it, you have to say, at least this is my point of view, contribution to victory has to be there. Longevity has to be there. High rate of success has to be there. And so, you know, that's all Vinatieri. That's all Vinny. Uh, yeah. And and you know, there's no, there'll be no argument over that. That's true of Morton, and it's true of Jan, who was also a pioneer. Yeah. Uh, you know, foreign born, uh, side saddle, etc. I had the good fortune of being with him for a, a for a year at Kansas City, and we're still good friends. Um, so. You know, the outstanding people, the hall is for the, is, is Peter King, I think, coined this phrase. The hall is for extraordinary, outstanding people. It's not the hall of the good. It's the hall of the great and the exceptional. And so if you apply that to kickers, that Vinny's a no brainer. And there, there are probably a few more that you could, you could, kind of squeeze into that category, but not many. Um, in terms of aesthetics, you're correct about Gail Sayers' uh, uh, running style, which he described as herky-jerky. Um, it wasn't. We would not describe it as herky-jerky. We would, we would describe it as Barishnikov-like. It was, was mesmerizing in its beauty. Um, but Megatron... That was a big consideration with Megatron. Yeah, the career wasn't as long as some others. Uh, but, man, those catches were incredible. Yeah. You know, he did things that no one else at his time in the league could do. And that's a fair, a very fair assessment. No mm -hmm. one argues that. Mm -hmm. how, how tough is that conversation for you and Coach Dungy being in the room and you've got guys at that position who you know are going to get get in at some point with with Reggie, but there's just going to be somebody in front of him this year because obviously you, you got to think Reggie will get in next year with the way the class is is shaping up. But is that tough for you guys? No. Is that a tough conversation for you guys? No, no, no. I think you 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 give you you you're there to give an honest opinion, right? Mm -hmm. And the honest opinion in Reggie's case is glowing. In Tony Pacelli's case, it's glowing. In John Lynch's case, it's glowing. Um, that's what we're there to do. Well. And uh, and and so, you know, it's not it's not hard. 
it's tough not to, you know, when they don't be, they don't make it. I mean, you're disappointed, but uh, you know, you do the best you can and, and be as honest as you can. Well, if, if you're if you're partisan, you know, everybody everybody loves their own guys. I mean, that that's a given, and that's true of writers too. Yeah, I mean, they yeah. they love the guys they they follow. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but um, you know, if you're if you're overly partisan. Or you're, uh, or, or you're overly negative in order to knock people down. That to me is is a no no. But I didn't I didn't see any of that at all. Mm-hmm. Well, you're probably lucky that Bob Sanders didn't play longer or stay healthier because that might have been a tougher conversation for you. Had he stayed, I, I think someone brought that up. It wasn't Tony or I brought it up in the context of John Lynch. Yeah. Uh, did he have the same effect in Tampa Bay as Bob Sanders did? And the answer was yes. And if Bob's injuries had not gotten in the way, we'd probably be talking about him in the same vein as Troy Palomalo, who was eminently deserving of selection. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. All right. Well, I think we've successfully navigated the sort of Hall of Fame process in the coming weeks. We're going to take a look at some of the careers of some of the Hall of Fame players that Bill had the chance to be around in his time with the Bills and the Colts, but wanted to close the loop on something that came up last week. Bill gave me a homework assignment and I did a little bit of research over the weekend and I found a big theme. No matter who you are as a quarterback in the NFL, playing your rookie year is pretty hard. So I went back to 1960 and looked at all of the sort of quarterback ratings that were sub, uh, you know, subpar in any given year and came back with a list of about 20 candidates who could be our candidate for the sort of Mendoza line of seasonal quarterback play. And what was interesting was, was that there, there were two names that sort of came up and two distinction points. So if we were going to have it be where the player had under 250 passes, believe it or not, Terry Bradshaw's 1970 season with the Steelers would have come in as the worst rated single season a quarterbacks had, according to rating in the history of the league for at least having more than 215 total passes. If the line for us was going to be north of 300 passes, Steve DeBerg's season with the 49ers, uh, I think in 1978, would have come in at uh, a 40 rating. But what's interesting, Bill, is sort of in the kismet nature of having the, the chance to take a look at your career, that Buffalo team in 85 with Ferragamo and Matheson had some tough quarterback ratings and a certain year in 98 where you had to make a really interesting quarterback decision is the only year statistically I could find where three quarterbacks with north of 200 passes had quarterback rating sub 50 with Craig Whelan, Bobby Hoying, and a certain quarterback named Leaf who you decided not to draft in the 98 draft. So we got candidates. It's kind of looking to me like the line might be the Bradshaw line. The Bradshaw line. Well, uh, I disagree, but only marginally. Okay. Um, Because the Mendoza line indicates a professional player. But Mendoza never, he hit 215, as Rick pointed out, for his career. So he was a marginal contributor throughout his career. 
Terry Bradshaw, after his rookie year, pretty good, went on to be a Hall of Famer. Yeah. So even though his QBR for that year was 30.4, which is the lowest among all of the 23 people you studied, uh, I would nominate because Terry is as a Hall of Famer is ineligible. You can't you can't right. name. I agree with that. Right. Yeah, yeah I, I feel name, like uh, you can. At some point, you overcome. Yeah. Yeah. So that takes us to Gary Morange. All right, <laughs> uh, here we go. Interestingly enough, with the Buffalo Bills, uh, with a quarterback rating of 30.8, Terry was 30.4, so it's only four one-hundredths of a, of a, of a, a point differential. So I, I think we I think we're all – feel pretty good about calling it the Morangi line. Yeah. Hey, and it's got a and, nice sort of a exactly. quality with the Mendoza line. Exactly. That's just what I was going to say. That, <laughs> may, that, that yeah. yes, that may be another criteria. If we ever do this, you know, in any other way, it's got to start with an M. So Twitter go forth and start calling it the Morangi line. If you will. Interestingly, enough, Gary Morangi, by the way, Gary Morangi, by the way, was, was a, was a decent quarterback. He was a decent quarterback. Uh, speaking of that, oh, sorry, Bill. No, 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 go ahead. Well, what the other weird stat in that 76 season was Joe Namath had a really bad year in 76. Yes, he did. (laughs) I mean, yes, he did. 39.9. So my takeaway is some pretty good quarterbacks can have a couple bad years from time to time, especially early in the career. So fans be patient. That's right. Indeed, be patient. Believe, Indeed, be patient. Right. Believe yeah. in your believe in your quarterbacks. Unless you were drafting quarterbacks in '98, which there was only one obvious person to take, and Bill happened to take it. But whatever. I mean, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> fine. It's good. Because <laughs> this would be a very different podcast if we gone with Bobby Hoy instead of Peyton Manning. Any question? There are a lot of people who now have amnesia who yeah. were part of that process. Right. That's right. Yeah. yeah. All right, gang. Well, that was a really fun episode. Thank you, guys. And as always, it's a good suggestion. Maybe, maybe mask up and get vaccinated. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.